In Genesis 1, verse 27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created it him. Male and female created them. And at verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. These and other parts of Holy Writ are the basis of our instruction in the Heidelberg Catechism. In Lord's Day 3, Question and answer six. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means. But God created man good and after his own image in true righteousness and holiness that I might rightly know God as Creator, heartily love Him, and live with Him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise Him. This far. The chief principle, beloved, of Reformed truth A principle by which you may live and by which you may determine the truth, the reformed truth, which is the only truth, is that God is all. And absolutely all. And that man is nothing. And that too, absolutely nothing. Wherever you hear that truth, no matter where, in America or anywhere, you may judge that that man is a good preacher. Wherever you do not hear that truth, no matter where, you may safely judge that he is a monkey. You can also put it this way. Whatever God is glorified and exalted most highly, whatever man is humiliated most deeply, there is the truth. Proclaim. That 
is the fundamental basis of the Heidelberg Catechism, especially in the first part of it, which we are discussing now. The part of man's misery which involves the confession that man is not only nothing, but that except by the grace of God and except by the grace of regeneration, he is much worse than nothing. By creation there was nothing. Of course not. God created him. He created him out of nothing. He created him according to his own will and counsel. He had nothing to say about his creation. Had nothing to say what nature he would receive. Or in what position he would stand in the world and in relation to God. That was all absolutely sovereignly determined for him, and therefore man, by virtue of his creation, is nothing. But he fell. He sinned. That's the only thing man can do as far as his relation to God is concerned. He can be nothing, but he can spoil everything, and that's what he did. Just exactly that, what he did. And through his sin, he became so absolutely incapable of doing any good that he cannot even think of his salvation, not will his salvation, still less do anything unto his salvation. He is absolutely corrupt and dependent on the grace of God as the Heidelberg Catechism has it in the third question of this Lord's Day. He is so corrupt that unless he is regenerated by the Spirit of God, he can do no good whatsoever. That's your form. And, beloved, I'm going to preach only on the first question because it's impossible. It's impossible to do justice to this entire Lord's Day. There's a Lord's Day... uh, implies really the whole of what is called the dogmatics anthropology, the whole locus of anthropology, and besides part of soteriology, the whole locus concerning man and part of the locus of uh, salvation is implied in this Lord's Day and to do justice to so much material and to such important material for this is fundamental, is it possible? And therefore I determined to speak only on the first question of this Lord's Day. 
and speak to you on man as created. His nature, his relation to God, his position in the world, his mandate or calling. Man has created his nature, his relation to God, his position in the world, his mandate or calling. Man, from a natural point of view, beloved, is one, not two, Now three, it does not consist in two or three different entities or two or three different beings. A soul and a body, or a soul and a body and a spirit, but is one, one being. He is, moreover, a spiritual, a personal, spiritual, psychical, and physical being. That's very plain for what is told us in Genesis 1, verse 7. God created man out of the dust of the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And thus man became a living soul. Notice, not God breathed a living soul into man, but man became a living soul. The whole man is a living soul in that way in which God created him. Animals are also living souls, just as well as men. But man is different. As a living soul, different from the animal. Because while the animals were called out of the ground, man was formed with his God's own fingers out of the dust of the earth. That's different. That act of God, however, whereby he created man, is one act, not two, but one act with two aspects. You must not read Genesis 2 verse 7 as if, as if it meant that God created a sort of a clay image and that he made that clay image alive by breathing into his nostrils. That's not true. One act of God with two aspects. 
And that one act of God with two aspects consisted of the truth. Reveal the truth. That God made man out of the dust of the ground so that he was related to the earth, was earthy, and that he so breathed into his nostrils the breath of life that he became a personal spirit and that he was also related to God. Thus, man was made a living soul. A personal, psychical, spiritual, physical being. That's man. Man is, as far as his present existence is concerned, entirely related to the earth. We must understand that. Otherwise we get confused in regard to our hope and longing for things heavenly. Through our five senses of sight and hearing and touch and taste and smell, we are related in a five-fold way to the earth. And our life is entirely early. That's why we don't want to get away from the earth. We don't. We don't want to get away from the earth. We do not want to go to heaven as far as our earthly nature is concerned. We do not want to have the earthly house of this tabernacle dissolved. We stick to it, we cling to it, we love it, and we like to stay here. That's not sin, that's nature. It's only from the principle of an altogether different life, which is not of this earth, the life of regeneration that we begin to have the hope of heaven in our hearts. For the rest we heard it. But there's more. This part of the nature of man, although important, the Heidelberg Catechism does not even discuss. It tells us that man was made good and that he was made after the image of God. Those two things must have further attention because they are important. Created good, God saw everything that he had made, including man, and behold, it was very good. We read in Genesis 1, 31. God. And, beloved, that man was made good it means in the first place that there was no defect in him at all. There was no moral defect. There was no physical defect. There was nothing in 
man as such that could make him sin as is the case with us. And there was nothing in man as such that make, could make him sick. There was no defect in man whatsoever. He came forth from the hand of the Creator perfect in parts. I say perfect in parts because it was not yet perfect in development and never did become perfect. Was a man as created by God was intentionally by God's own intention of course so made uh, that she was free with the capability of destroying and forfeiting his own freedom. That was Adam's freedom. Adam was free, yes. Uh, but his freedom did not consist in this, that it was neutral over against good and evil. That's no freedom. That's Pelagian freedom. But that, that's no freedom. The freedom of Adam, as God created him, did not consist in this, that he could do good and could do evil. So that he stood before uh, good and evil in that uh, undetermined and neutral way, just as when I leave this church I can go, as a, if I want to, I can go through this door or through that door or through any other door. That's not Adam's freedom. Adam's freedom was indeed such uh, that he stood in the love of God, that he wanted to, as he was created, that he wanted to do the will of God. That's freedom. That's freedom, and that freedom Adam stood. But uh, that freedom of Adam was immiscible, could be lost. Therefore, I say, that Adam's state was good, but not perfect in the highest possible sense of the word. You know, there are different kinds of freedom. There's freedom, uh, so that we can do the good and can, uh, don't have to sin, but can lose our freedom. There's the moral freedom of the sinner, dead in sin and misery, that uh, is a state in which he can do nor will do any good. And there is the highest freedom of Christ. 
the freedom in which we shall never be able to will or to do any sin anymore. That's freedom in the highest sense of the word. God. That freedom I did not possess. He possessed the freedom in which he could do the good and could lose his freedom by turning around willfully as he did. Uh, but uh, what does it mean that man was made after God's image? In general, we often say and do say uh, that the image of God meant uh, that uh, Adam was made with a creaturely likeness of God. That's true. Image and likeness are, of course, similar terms. That man is made after the image of God undoubtedly means that he was made in such a way that he was like God. No question about that. Uh, but uh, the question is, what's the contents of that image? And then, beloved, the distinction, as you probably know, I used to know anyway, and many of you do know, uh, that is uh, usually made in uh, reform circles, is uh, the distinction between the image of God in a narrower and in a wider sense. And the in image of God in the wider sense then includes that he is a rational, moral being, and so on and so forth, immortal, and so forth. That's also mentioned. While the image of God in a narrower sense, that means that uh, he stood a righteous, that knowledge, righteousness, and holiness before God. Now, uh, the distinction is dangerous because it leads to uh, the error that presently when man is fallen, he still has a remnant of the image of God and also a remnant of the original knowledge of righteousness. And that we must never have. And therefore, beloved, I would say this. Uh, what they call the image of God in a wider sense, I would call the image of God in a formal sense. That is, man was so created that he could bear the image of God. You know, every creature cannot bear the image of God. A dog cannot bear the image of God. A cow cannot bear the image of God. Only man can bear the image of God because he is a rational and moral creature. That's why man is a being that can carry, that can bear the image of God. And the image of God, in a narrower sense, then implies, of course, knowledge of God, righteousness, and holiness. And with that knowledge, and with that righteousness and holiness, Adam was endowed from the beginning. He had that. 
What does that mean? What does it mean that Adam had knowledge of God? He, as he stood there, as he was created, does it mean that Adam had any dogmatical or theoretical, doctrinal knowledge in his head? Of course not. If Adam had been in our school this week, where I had an examination in dogmatics and ecclesiology, he would have flunked. Would have flunked. He didn't know anything about it. Not as he stood there. That's not the knowledge of Adam, the knowledge of God which Adam had. Not dogmatical knowledge, not doctrinal knowledge. Certainly not the knowledge which we uh, deduce from Scripture. Adam's knowledge, beloved, was such that it was intuitive. Intuitive. His mind was adapted to the mind of God. As it was created. His mind was in tune with the mind of God. His mind was such uh, that he could always see in all the works of God's hand his revelation. And that he could read the name of God in all the works of his hands, which we cannot do anymore. We cannot read anymore, beloved. We're blind by nature. We're blind. We can see a little difference. We can see the difference between the ocean and the mountain. We can see the difference between the sparrow and a tree. But we do not know the sparrow. And we do not know the tree. And we do not know the ocean. And we do not know the mountain as a word of God. But Adam could, as is evident from the fact that he could read the names of the animals. Adam stood in the midst of of all creation. As soon as he was made, as soon as God formed him out of the dust of the ground, and he became a rational moral being endowed with the image of God, he stood there and had contact with that whole word of God and could read read the name of God and did read it and fell down in worship and said, Oh my God. That was Adam. Knowledge. And that knowledge of God was knowledge of love. Not theoretical knowledge of the knowledge the knowledge of love. 
as we shall have it in the far, far more perfect sense in uh, the new heavens and the new earth, in Christ. The next element was of the image of God is righteousness. Also righteousness, beloved, is not to be compared with the righteousness which we have in Christ for more than one reason. The righteousness which we have in Christ is principally imputed unto us, reckoned unto us. Adam did not know of any imputed righteousness. It was righteousness in his very will, in his very nature. His righteousness meant, beloved, that his will, his will, and therefore also his mind, you cannot separate the mind from the will. The mind and the will are interrelated. Uh, knowledge and righteousness are also interrelated, of course. There is no knowledge without righteousness, and there is no righteousness without knowledge. Don't forget that. There is. But, beloved, Adam's righteousness consisted in this, that his will stood upright. That is, that his will was like the will of God, in the sense that he loved to do his will. That was Adam's righteousness. He loved to do the will of God in all his life. And so, Adam was holy, of course. Holiness is very similar to knowledge and righteousness, just as righteousness and knowledge are very similar, but they're nevertheless distinct in this, that holiness means that purity of all our mind and desire and will and aspirations, whereby our whole nature is consecrated to the living God. That's holiness. That was Adam. In that knowledge, righteousness and holiness, Adam stood from the very beginning in paradise, and therefore, beloved, therefore, Adam was from the very beginning created a covenant creature, and from the very beginning he stood in covenant relation to God. That's Adam's covenant. I want to say a few words about that. Uh, that covenant in which Adam stood and which all scripture uh, plainly teaches, the whole scripture is full of the covenant, that covenant in which Adam stood, beloved, in the first place, was not established after his creation, but was given with his creation. 
to stand as a creature that is made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness implies that he stood in covenant relation to God. A creature that stands in the image of God and stands in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness can sustain only a relation to God that is a covenant relation. That's all. Is no other relation thinkable of such a creature. And therefore, the reformed theory of story that has been inculcated into the church and not from the time of the Hadleburg Catechism, but about from the time of the Westminster Confession, which was about eighty-five uh, uh, or ninety years later than the Catechism, since that time the story was inculcated into the Reformed Church of uh, Adam standing in a covenant of works. And that covenant of works then consisted of a condition, namely, uh, that he refrained from eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or generally that he would obey God, a promise, the promise being eternal life and glory, and a penalty, the penalty being death. That is a story. There's no such thing as scripture. You'll never find anything like that in scripture. A covenant with a condition, a condition of promise, and a penalty doesn't exist. Not a scripture. That's impossible. That's impossible. Besides, beloved, not only do you not read a tittle or a yota in scripture about this covenant of work so called, not at all. You do, of course, read uh, the threat of death. That stands the reason. That's not a covenant. When God says to Adam, The day thou eatest that of thou shalt surely die, that's certainly not a covenant. That's a threat. That's all. Uh, but in the second place, we must never forget that a covenant of works is impossible because we can never, never merit anything with God. Never. If Adam had lived a hundred years and if after those hundred years of perfect obedience God would have taken him away out of existence, he would have done absolutely no injustice. 
Adam wouldn't have died, of course. That's punishment. But after a hundred years, suppose at the eve of that uh, taking away of Adam out of the present existence, God would have said to him, Well, Adam, I'm going to take you away. Have anything to say? He would say, No, Lord, there's no injustice. I thank, I thank thee for the hundred years I might live and obey thee and a fellowship with thee. I thank thee. I, uh, I owe, uh, you owe me nothing. If we do everything that we have to do, we are unprofitable servants as far as God is concerned. In the second place, Adam was worthy. Worthy. He could not only not merit eternal life, he didn't even care for eternal life. He didn't. I don't mean everlasting existence, a paradise, that was all right. If Adam had not sinned, let's put that philosophy for a moment. If Adam had not sinned, he would have existed everlastingly, but that's not eternal life. Eternal life is heavenly life, is glorified life, is life in the new kingdom, is life in Christ. Is life on the other side of death, in regeneration and resurrection. That is eternal life. That's immortality. And Adam was not immortal, he was mortal. Mortal. He could die. He was early. Suppose, after God, after Adam had served, God for a hundred years or a thousand years even and God would have come to him and have said him well said to him well Adam you've been so faithful that now I am going to take you to heaven would you like that Adam Adam would have said no thank you Lord I don't care for heaven I don't know what heaven is I have no idea of heaven. I don't care for heaven. I'm perfectly satisfied here in paradise. Let me stay here, please. And it was early. Early. Only the regenerated man in Christ can hope for heaven and long for heaven. That's all. And that's a story, beloved. Besides, do not forget... Adam was the father and the head of the whole human race. He had to bring forth the human race. How could he be glorified? How could he? Must he, must he exist in the world for six or eight or ten thousand years before he can be glorified? That's nonsense. And therefore, in Adam's life, the moment could never come that God would say to Adam, And now, Adam, I glorify thee in heaven. He had to bring forth the whole human race. That was calling. And he couldn't do that in heaven. He couldn't do that in glory. 
That's impossible. Well, and I thought, Adam certainly stood in a state in which he could live in eternal happiness in paradise before God. There's no question about that. That's terrible character too. If he remained obedient, he would have glorified his God in paradise, in the earthly paradise forever, but he could never be glorified in heaven. There is no covenant of works anyway, beloved. Besides, that would have been terrible if uh, uh, Adam could have uh, attained to glory, it is the same glory as which we now have in Christ, and he would have uh, not attained to it, but fallen, that the whole business is terribly awful, is really awful, that the whole counsel and plan of God is a failure, that the devil really is a victory. Adam could have uh, led us all into eternal glory, the whole human race, without election or reprobation. Adam could have done that. Then there would have been no sin, no death, no uh, terrible history of the cross, no death of the Son of God. Adam could have led us straight into glory, and he didn't. What a terrible plan of God that would have been. No, beloved, that isn't so. Adam could never have led us into glory, and Adam did not stand in, in have any covenant of works. He stood in the covenant of friendship before God from the very time of his creation. That was Adam's covenant. He was the friend of God. That's covenant. That's, that's the real covenant idea. God is a covenant God. Try you. One in all his virtues, but personal distinction, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And these three persons of the Holy Trinity, living and loving and acting on the level of the same essence of God, stand in a relation of everlasting, perfect friendship to one another. And God planned to reveal that highest that was in him, his covenant life, in a covenant with the creature. And that covenant he established in principle, in beginning, with Adam. Adam was made after the image of God. And that image of God was the possibility, was the basis of the relation of the covenant. Because of that image, Adam could be the friend of God and stand in friendship, in knowledge, in love, in adoration before the God of his creation. That was Adam. That's the covenant. 
Not a covenant that was established after creation, but a covenant that was given by creation because of the fact that Adam was made after the image of God and therefore stood by virtue of that image in relation of friendship to the living God of his creation. That's the covenant. So, beloved, you have Adam's mandate, his calling, as well as his position in the world. I cannot elaborate on that anymore. I will be brief. I have to be brief. Adam was, in that covenant of God, prophet. To know God. To declare His virtues before all the creatures. And to glorify Him in all the works of His hand. That was Adam as prophet. In that covenant, Adam was priest. And as priest, he consecrated himself and all things to the living God. All creatures. He was priest of creation. Priest of animals and man. He interceded for the creature before God. He was their intercessor, the high priest. And it was the king. That was the culmination of his position. King under God. He was given dominion. Dominion over all things. Over all things earthy. With dominion crowned he stood in the original creation. Dominion. Not the dominion which we shall have in Christ Jesus in the new kingdom... That is a dominion under which heaven and earth are united. Adam had earthly dominion over an earthly kingdom, but dominion he had, it was king, king under God. King under God, that is. He had to ask and know and keep the will of God for every creature. That was Adam's position. Prophet, priest, and king. In God's covenant. In other words, his mandate was to be prophet, priest, and king, even in cultivating the earth, in cultivating paradise, in cultivating all things, prophet, priest, and king, so that his mandate was principally to love the Lord his God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength and all things. That was Adam. He fell. He fell. He rebelled. Willfully. Of that I don't have to speak this morning. That comes to the next question and answer. 
but I must speak of it in order to show you the importance of what I've been saying so far. Adam fell. He fell as a covenant creature. And all the sin of man is forever covenant sin. Man can never help to live formally as a covenant creature. He always does. Can't happen. But he sins. Instead of friendship, there's enmity. Instead of love, there's hatred. Instead of light, there is darkness. Instead of righteousness, there's iniquity. Instead of holiness, there's corruption. His whole nature is turned about by sin. He's hopelessly, hopelessly lost. That's it. How will be explained next week, the Lord will. But, beloved, this is my only comfort in life and in death. Understand that? That I belong to Jesus Christ. That's my only comfort. That is my only possible comfort. Can you see that now? In Christ, there is the restoration of the covenant for sinners as we are. In Christ, there is the redemption that is the basis of that restoration. In Christ, there is the power of deliverance from sin and death and corruption, the power, from death and corruption from which I could never deliver myself or even care to be delivered of myself, so dead in trespasses and sins I am, as so dead in trespasses and sins you are, just so. You can do nothing. You cannot do anything. Nothing. Call it all. You are nothing. Nothing. Understand that? Receive that. Receive that by faith. You can never receive it by nature. You rebel against this preaching. But if you do, it'll be to your condemnation, because it's the truth. It's the truth. 
Nothing but the truth. And this is my only comfort in life and in death, in time and eternity, that I belong to that powerful Redeemer and Savior and Restorer and Exalter of the Covenant of God because He exalts the Covenant. He doesn't bring us back to Adam in paradise. Through death and resurrection, He advances the Covenant of God to everlasting glory. That's my comfort. That's my comfort because now I know that in Christ Jesus, God, God who is all, God who is almighty, has revealed himself as the one that loves me and who poured out his love in my heart by his sovereign grace and who engrafted me into that Redeemer by the instrument of the living faith. Now I know that he can and will and shall even when I am in the shadow of the valley of death the valley of the shadow of death deliver me and make me glorious with him in everlasting perfection where I will never be able to sin anymore. That is comfort. Is it yours? Amen. Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word, for the Word of Thy sovereign grace, for the word that proclaims unto us that we are wholly undone and that we are dependent wholly upon thee. Oh, we're glad we are, oh God, we're glad we are because we cannot do anything at all. We leave all things in thy hand as thy people and pray, save us by thy grace. Amen.